Good to be with you this morning. Uh, the one announcement I, I don't think I heard <clears throat> Howard make uh, was that your morning service next week is at 10 o'clock. I don't think I heard that announcement, so you, you might want to keep that in mind. So there were, there were two families in a neighborhood, and for one reason or another, they, they really didn't get along all that well. And uh, so one lady, when she was looking out her kitchen window, oh, her heart just fell because there was their German shepherd shaking the life out of the next-door neighbor's rabbit. Oh, what is she going to do? She runs out with a broom, hammers the German shepherd till he drops the rabbit. She gathers up the rabbit, you know, this lifeless thing, and she takes it in the house and washes it and blows it dry so that it's nice and fluffy like rabbits should be. And then she snuck into the neighbor's backyard and propped it up in the cage and closed the door and went back home. A few minutes later, she heard a scream. It was the neighbor next door. And so she ran out and said, what, what's wrong? Well, our, our, our rabbit died last week and we buried him and he's back. <laughs> and, and it caught her totally by surprise. And I don't know if that's true or not. But we find the same kind of thing happening in Luke chapter 24. When Jesus comes back from the grave and his disciples are struggling to embrace the idea that Jesus is back. So what we have in Luke 24, just to, just to tie things together, in the art world, it's called a triptych. Now, when you hear the word triptych, you think CAA, right? Those old things, you used to go to CAA and you were going to take a trip down to Prince Edward Island and you would say, I need a triptych for the trip. And they would put this thing with maps that would fold out and points of interest. This is spelled T-R-I-P-T-Y-C-H. Okay, remember, we're in the art world now. We're not traveling. And a triptych is a three-paneled uh, picture. And Luke is giving us a triptych of that first Lord's Day, Easter Sunday, when Jesus had risen from the dead. So the first panel in this triptych is verses 1 to 12. And if you were to picture that, it would be uh, the women showing up at the empty tomb with angels telling them that Jesus is risen from the dead. That's panel number one. Panel number two, maybe you can picture Rembrandt's famous painting of Jesus with the two travelers on the road to Emmaus. So this is from verse 13 to verse 35, and Jesus goes along with them, travels all the way to Emmaus, they don't know it's Jesus. He's opening the scripture to them and telling them that the Messiah had to suffer 
and then enter his glory. They thought that that disqualified Jesus from being the Messiah. And yet the Old Testament was saying that, no, that's the proof that Jesus is the Messiah, that he had to suffer and then enter his glory. And then their eyes were opened in the breaking of bread. And then the third panel in this uh, three-paneled portrait is what we're looking at this morning. And that is Jesus appearing suddenly amidst his disciples who are closed away for fear in a room that is locked. And Jesus shows up. Turn with me, please, to Luke 24, verses 36 to 43. And, and the thing that strings these, these, all these pictures in this triptych together is a sense of joyful disbelief. Okay, that's the title of the message today, Joyful Disbelief, as we look at Luke 24, verses 36 to 43. So the two from Emmaus, after they, after they realize that it's Jesus, they hurry back to Jerusalem in the dark, they make the journey seven miles back to Jerusalem. And uh, they show up, and everybody is excited. Verse 36, while they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. While they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it in their presence. And we're going to stop the reading there. It's really not a good place to stop, but we don't have time to continue to the end of the chapter. So the, the outline for this passage is very simple. Verses 36 to 37, in, in the face of the disciples' joyful disbelief, first of all, Jesus spoke peace. And then secondly, in the remaining verses, Jesus offered proof. Jesus spoke peace. Jesus offered proof. So verse 36, while, they were, while the disciples were excitedly trading stories that they had heard from others that Jesus is alive, and some had experienced that themselves, and the room is just buzzing with this excited conversation, while they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. Now, peace, peace is a common greeting, right, in, in, in the Middle East, among Arabs and Jews. So, you know, you're familiar with the Hebrew greeting, shalom. It, it means a sense of wholeness and health and, and well-being, that you are... 
praying would be the experience of the person that you are meeting, shalom. Uh, there's a lot in that word. It's, it's a lot weightier than just saying hi. Okay, shalom is not the Hebrew version of hi. It's, it's deeper than that. And when the Prince of Peace takes up that greeting and speaks it to his disciples, it gets deeper still. So here is Jesus standing in their midst. So it was a common greeting. Everybody said shalom to everybody when they met. But in this case, it was a necessary greeting because we read in verse 37 that the disciples were startled and frightened thinking that they saw a ghost. But there's more than just fright. There's more than just surprise. There's more than just Jesus calming these guys down from his startling appearance. Jesus spoke peace to them in light of their past failures. Think about it. As the disciples are hearing about different ones who have seen the risen Lord, I'm sure that somewhere along the line they're thinking of the past few days and how they responded to Jesus' arrest and trial and crucifixion. One of the Gospels summarizes it this way. They all forsook him and fled. And now they hear Jesus is alive. And they're wondering, what is that going to be like when I see him? What is he going to say to me? So don't you think it's a great thing that when the risen Christ appears to his disciples, the first word out of his mouth to them collectively as a group is peace be with you. Jesus also spoke peace because he knew their present doubts and fears, and that's what the rest of this passage gets into. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus did all that was necessary to secure terms of peace with God. Every other religion, every other man-made approach to trying to connect with the divine in whatever form they talk about it, is radically different than what we find in the Bible. Because every other man-made approach has us working on something to earn God's acceptance and to come to terms with peace. We have to do something. We have got to climb a mountain or take a pilgrimage or jump through any number of religious hoops to try to established terms of peace. And in the Christian gospel, Jesus does everything. The Prince of Peace does everything for terms of peace with God. We show up with nothing to offer God but the ownership of our guilt and the confession of our sin. That's what we bring to the table. The ownership of our guilt and the confession 
of our sin, and he has done it all. And so we read in Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, and this first little bit, we need to, we need to get a hold of this. For God was pleased through Christ. Now I'm shortening this just to make this point, that God was pleased through Christ to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So Jesus does it all, but notice there that God is pleased to do this through Christ. That this is not something that God feels arm-wrestled into doing or he's under compulsion or constrained by whatever, he is pleased through Christ to reconcile all things to himself by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And keep in mind that salvation requires not just the death of Christ, but the resurrection as well. In other words, we would have no salvation if Jesus did not rise from the dead. We could not go around saying, oh, Jesus paid for my sins through his blood shed on the cross, now let's go visit his tomb. It's not going to work. And it's not going to work because the resurrection comes across like the other bracket on our salvation to show that everything is complete. That the payment that Jesus made through his blood shed on the cross has been accepted by God and the approval and acceptance of his sacrifice is demonstrated in Jesus' resurrection from the dead. So here's a verse that brings those two things together. Romans 4, verse 25. Christ was delivered over to death for our sins. There's the payment made. Now listen to the next part of this verse. And was raised to life for our justification. God could not declare us righteous apart from the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. So through faith in the Lord Jesus, we can have peace with God. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The enmity, the hostility, of sin has been taken away, even our hearts are transformed in God's saving work. We have become new creatures in Christ with new desires to, to praise and worship and live for the God who has redeemed us. And this is all because Jesus completed the terms of peace with God. And then we also know that on the basis now of belonging to God, in a relationship that can never end. That as we go through life and we are stressed and we are troubled and we get in turmoils and perplexities because of what happens in our lives, that on the basis of what he has done, on the basis of having peace with God, that then through the fact that Jesus is our great high priest, we can bring everything to God in prayer and this is the way that Paul ties this in, in Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 to 7. Do not be anxious about 
anything but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving. Present your request to God and the peace of God. See, there's another one. The peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So, Jesus spoke peace. And boy, did those guys need Jesus to speak peace at a number of different levels. And that's exactly what he did. What a gracious thing for the risen Christ to do. Secondly, Jesus offers proof, verses 38 to 43. So just 38 in the first part of 39, uh, Jesus said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and feet. It is I myself. So Jesus here is lovingly challenging his disciples to consider what was keeping them from believing that he was risen from the dead. And the first proof that Jesus offers here is visual. Look at my hands and feet. The scars of Jesus' crucifixion were evident in his resurrection body. And uh, we get a sense of that very clearly from uh, Thomas. You know, Thomas was missing when Jesus showed up the first time and wasn't there. And so he just, he says, I will not believe unless I can put my hands in the scars of Jesus' body. I will not believe. And then Jesus shows up. And I don't know whether he did or didn't. Uh, John leaves us hanging on that. But he does fall down on his knees and proclaim, my Lord and my God. So the scars are there. Jesus is holding out his hands and feet. Look, look at my hands and feet. Here, here's the proof. It's me. Nobody has a body like this. Look at the scars. Do you, do you have a scar? That if somebody needed to identify you, you would, you know? Oh, yeah, that's, you know, he got that when he was riding down the hill and fell off his bike. And you know, that's, that's, that's with you forever. So there is the scars. Jesus, uh, the first proof he offers is visual. Look at my hands and feet. Jesus had a marvelous, same but different physical body with extraordinary abilities. Next, Jesus invites them further on, further in. He invited them to touch, uh, middle of verse 39 to 40. Touch me and see a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And when he showed them this, he showed them his hands and feet. So there was real skin. He invited them to touch. In fact, the word touch there is stronger than that. The word means to grab a hold of and handle. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's real. Jesus has real skin, and, and I can feel bones underneath there. And so they're grabbing a hold of Jesus, grabbing his arm, looking at his feet, touching his feet. There's skin, there's bone, there's flesh. It really is him. It was such an amazing thing, they could hardly believe it. It was, it was as if their joy was overwhelming their faith. 
You ever had an experience like that? You know, you get a call from a lawyer and, and he's calling to inform you that great uncle Louie, whom you have never met, has remembered you in his will and you are the recipient of $5 million. What? Your joy, just, wow, that's unbelievable, right? And these guys still can't believe it. Look at verse 41. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. You know, ghosts aren't interested in food. Did you know that? They can't handle it. You get it? Ghosts can't handle food. You get it? And the Bible doesn't have, there's nowhere there that supports the idea of you know, these uh, semi-transparent figures that sort of float around and do spook. There's nothing in the Bible that supports that approach. And this wasn't just a one-time occurrence. Peter refers to this continuing proof when he shows up to give the gospel to Cornelius and his friends in Acts chapter 10 and verse 41. Listen to what he says. Jesus was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen. Now here's the next part. By us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. This was not a one-off thing. They gave Jesus a piece of broiled fish and he ate it. And then in other places where we see Jesus meeting up with the disciples during the 40 days before he ascended to heaven, Jesus is eating and drinking with the disciples, and Peter is using that as he shares the gospel with Cornelius. You can, you can believe our word because Jesus just proved that he was risen from the dead over and over and over again. The disciples did look, and touch, and touched, and handled, and ate, and drank with Jesus, and then being thoroughly convinced, they went out to preach the good news of the gospel. Uh, so John, in 1 John 1, 1, this is how he starts the epistle. Listen to the, uh, the tangibility of what he's communicating here. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, there's the visual proof, which we have looked at, so we've examined the evidence, and our hands have handled. Why is he saying all that? Because he's offering his eyewitness proof of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And then he goes on and says, this we proclaim to you concerning the word of life. It is real. It is touchable. It is tangible. I saw it myself. I handled the resurrection 
body of Jesus Christ for myself. And this is what we declare to you of the word of life. It is solid good news. So as we go back over this, right, that's, we're going to stop looking at the text now and just pull some things together to make an application. So my first question uh, today is, do you have peace with God? If, you, if this was your day, your number was called, you're standing before God, and he asked you, why should I let you into heaven? Are you going to start talking about your performance? Are you going to try to convince God that you're a good person? Are you going to list all the things, all the reasons that other people think you're a great neighbor? Or are you just going to say, Jesus died on the cross for my sins and rose again from the dead? Do you believe that Jesus rose physically from the dead? If you don't, then there's, there's no reason to believe anything this book has to say. That's how critical it is that we believe in the physical resurrection of Jesus from the dead. There is not another religious system out there that has anything like that. And that is another thing that makes the gospel unique. Do you believe that Jesus rose physically from the dead? You and I physically, we can't see Jesus. We can't look at his hands and feet. We can't touch his resurrection body. But we have the testimony of reliable witnesses who did. So at many times, in various circumstances, the disciples of Jesus had ample opportunity to examine the evidence. They saw him together in groups and not just privately. 1 Corinthians 15.6, Paul talks about a group of, of 500 people uh, together that saw Jesus all at one time, besides the other uh, private ones and then in smaller groups as well. And their testimony is strengthened by the fact that they were skeptical at first. Have you ever thought about the accounts of the resurrection being that much more believable because the disciples doubted that Jesus was alive? They weren't expecting it. It caught them by surprise. That undergirds the believability when they do finally get a hold of that truth and go out to preach the gospel. And there's nothing in there that speaks of them, you know, getting together and saying, okay, let's, let's, let's come up with a story. Yeah, Jesus died, but let's, let's write the end of the story differently. So we, we'll come up with these ideas about Jesus being raised from the dead. You know, you know why it wouldn't work? Charles Colson shared a story. Charles Colson of Watergate fame. Um, he was not a believer at one point in his life. And, and he came to believe in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead because of Watergate. So here you've got all these powerful people, right? John Dean, Charles Colson, all the other, I don't know, the, I can't remember the names of all the other guys who were in on that. 
And it was only two weeks when they concocted a story as a cover-up for Watergate. It only took two weeks for John Dean to crack. And then everybody went running and trying to protect their own position. It only took, that's how long, just that small group of people could keep those false stories going. And the other thing we have in the Bible is that uh, the disciples died for the truth that Jesus rose from the dead. Secondly, the thing that you'll notice if you do go on in Luke 24, so if you look at verses uh, 44 and on, Jesus then goes on. So they've got this firsthand experience of Jesus being raised from the dead, but it's not enough. Look at what he says in Verse 44, he said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Do you see what he's doing there? Their personal experience of knowing and touching and seeing the risen Christ wasn't enough. They needed to have their hearts convinced based on the scripture. And so he takes them to the word of God. Don't you find it interesting that when Jesus is, is uh, he, he overtakes the travelers on the road to Emmaus, right? The two guys are walking along, they're sad. Jesus comes along. Uh, what things? What things are you talking about? Oh, that, are you the only one who hasn't heard about the stuff that's gone on in Jerusalem the last few days? Uh, tell me about it. So they're walking along. And notice Jesus does not at that point say, hey guys, it's me. Everything's okay. You don't need to be sad anymore. What does he do before their eyes are opened and they come to realize it's Jesus? He teaches them the word of God. He shows them from the scriptures that the Messiah had to suffer and then to enter his glory. And, and Jesus is doing it here with his disciples, but in reverse order. Here's the tangibility of Jesus risen from the dead. And now he says, that's not enough. To, you need to know that this is found in the word of God. So that is where we come in. That we come to the scriptures and we have our hearts convinced by the sure testimony of eyewitnesses. And it's all over the Bible. The Old Testament talks about the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he moves from the experience of being in that upper room into teaching them from the word of God. The third point that I'd like to make is that we should not minimize the physicality of Jesus' resurrection. Jesus went out of his way to disprove, I don't know what to call it, you know, ethereal, an ethereal uh, view of, 
resurrected life and the life of the world to come. Airy fairy, that might be. Jesus goes out of his way to demonstrate that it's not going to be airy fairy. Touch me. Come on, you guys. Get on board with the physicality of my resurrection. Look at my hands and feet. Touch me. Grab a hold and handle my flesh risen from the dead. So if Jesus goes out of his way, we shouldn't minimize it or come up with our own cockeyed notions of what resurrection is going to be like and the life of the world to come. There's a physicality here and sometimes when I'm talking to Christians, oh, I don't like that idea. That it's going to be so physical. I, I, I like the idea of harps and clouds and floating and it's just... But it doesn't measure up. The floaty idea doesn't measure up with the tangibility of what we find in the Bible. In the beginning, God made a physical creation and declared it to be good. And though we see death and decay at work in our world broken by sin, the Bible declares that one, get, one day God will undo the damage caused by our sin. There will be a new heaven and a new earth, and redemption will not only affect the people of God, but the physical matter of creation. So Romans 8.21 is the most powerful passage in this regard. That creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay. And creation itself will be brought into. There's creation being affected by Christ's redeeming work and being brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Freedom from decay, freedom from death, but in a tangible, physical way. I came across um, an excerpt from a book written by John Dixon, not the John Dixon that we're familiar with, but another guy wrote a book, If I Were God, I Would End All the Pain. This is what he says. It turns out that the biblical coming kingdom is not an ethereal place of clouds and ghosts, but a tangible place of real existence. It is a new creation. It is life in the fullest sense of the, wor of the word a reality in which the mor moral and physical tensions of our current world will be resolved through an extraordinary act of divine recreation. And when I find myself doubting that such a fantastic hope could ever become a reality, I need only go down to the beach near where I live or look up at a glorious night sky and remind myself that God has already done it once. He's already done it once. Christ's rising to life is central to biblical faith, not merely because it marks out his life as a unique moment in history, but because it, God shows that he is willing and able to breathe new life where there is currently death. The resurrection of Jesus is God's tangible pledge within history that he intends to do the same for the whole creation at the end of history.
Now listen to this summary, these next two sentences as he summarizes. This current world convinces me of God's ability to recreate the universe. The resurrection of Jesus convinces me of his intention to do just that. In other words, if Jesus was raised, tangible, physical, flesh and blood, it's, it's the same but different. And he didn't raise him in a, in a semi-transparent, floating kind of existence, but tangible. It, it points in the direction that that's what, what, what God is going to do in the future for you and for the world in which we live. So that hope of a physical resurrection can bring joy in the midst of physical suffering. You and I experience uh, pain and weakness and disability and disease and, and that just grows, right? As we get older, the, all of those things creep in and become more and more part of our experience. But the hope of a physical resurrection means that God is going to bring that to an end. And I like how in uh, Revelation 21, when uh, John is giving a vision of, an, of the new heavens and the new earth, that he has to talk about it in terms of the things that aren't going to be there. Because we understand those things. We understand pain. No more suffering. No death. No sorrow. No. And he, his catalog of what heaven is going to be like are, are the very things that creep in on us because sin has entered the world and they're going to be gone. The presence of sin will no longer be a problem. And then lastly, the hope of a physical resurrection brings comfort in the sorrow of death. So when we stand at a graveside or we go out somewhere special to sprinkle our loved one's ashes and we commit those to the earth, we do so in sure and certain hope of a physical resurrection. And that changes everything. That when the Lord descends from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, our loved ones, the dead in Christ, will rise first. That's what kept Job going. Job 19.25, I know that my Redeemer lives and on the earth will stand and that in my flesh, there it is in Job 19.25, in my flesh I will see God. That's the hope that you and I share because of the physical resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, uh, what a wonderful thing you have provided for us. 
not just the fact that Jesus paid for our sin and, and his resurrection demonstrates your approval and acceptance of his payment so that peace is made with you, but we have so much, Lord, to look forward to. And in the meantime, we want to live lives of hope for you in this world that is so deeply affected by death and decay. So help us to be people of hope as we fix our eyes on Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.